Hi there, it is so good to be with you. Uh, just an absolute joy to be able to come and serve the church in this way and just spend time with you today across the various sites. Um, I just love this church. I've been here to, to speak and worship with you on a number of occasions. I've got lots of friends and family in the church and it's just a joy to be with you and particularly to be looking at the Psalms, which is just the most beautiful book to be able to pick up almost anything and find something enriching. Today, I'd love to speak from Psalm 91. Psalm 91. So if you have a Bible, it could turn there. Uh, that'd be great. I, this is a, it's a funny Psalm because it's a Psalm that some people really cling to with a lot of almost ferocity of when they really need to hold on to God. And it's a Psalm that to others of us seems like almost a bit problematic. How on earth do you say that and still believe it in a context where bad things happen to Christians? And if you're not a believer, if you're new to Christianity, new to the church, not really sure you believe any of it, it's just a weird thing to hear sometimes, like God makes all of these promises to preserve his people. And you think, well, it's just plainly obvious that sometimes d bad things do happen to people who are Christians. In fact, it often does. So what's the story there and how do we deal with it? And how do we find the hope and encouragement and strength that the psalmist clearly means us to find in this psalm? by reading it wisely. So what's going on there and how do we do it? So we're going to read Psalm 91. I'm just going to read it. This will have challenged us afresh, probably some of us, during the pandemic season, because you, you have these you know promises that sound like they're saying you're never going to get sick, and then Christians do, and churches have to close down for months at a time. So what do we do with it and how do we find the goodness of God in it? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Psalm 91 is one of the most reassuring and fortifying, strengthening chapters in Scripture. It's full of really rich promises that go down deep into the goodness of God. But many people struggle to receive those promises because of a misunderstanding, which I think is really important to address up front. And it go, the misunderstanding is kind of easy to see how it emerges from the psalm, but it goes something like this. 
Some people will read this psalm as if it is a series of categorical guarantees that if you worship God and if you trust him to deliver you, you will never come to any physical harm whatsoever. Which I think on one reading you can totally see how people get that. Faith in that sense functions like an immunity passport. Like this means if I just trust God or I believe this or I affirm these things, I will never come to any harm at all. Faithful believers in this view will never be killed in battle, even if 10,000 people around them all are. You know, battlefields are strewn with bodies in all directions, but the person who trusts in the Lord doesn't die. Lovers of God will never be struck by deadly plague or pestilence or coronavirus or whatever it is. That's, that's how some people can, would read it, right? They'd say, that's what it is. It's a promise. It's a categorical guarantee that if I love the Lord, these things will never happen to me. Trusting God in this view makes you automatically immune to physical harm, which of course raises the question about do people even die if they trust in the Lord? In its extreme form, that means you could handle poisonous snakes without being bitten, or you can jump off a building and not get hurt. Like one pastor I know who said to me, I believe that you can, if you really believe, if you really have enough faith, you can choose the timing of your own death. This is some years ago. I was like, whoa, that's, that's how you understand these, the, the teaching of Scripture? That if, got, if you trust God enough, you really got a proper vision. I, I think that's, that's what happens. You can say, I'm, I know when I will die, and I'm going to decide, now, Lord, my time to go. Now, that's how, the funny thing is, of course, that's how some very committed Christians read the passage, but it's also how a bunch of skeptical people read the passage. They argue exactly the same thing. They say, yes, that is what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist does mean that trusting God makes you immune to physical harm, and he's just simply wrong about it. So in some ways, the people who are very pro the God of healing and deliverance and the people who are very anti him read the passage in exactly the same way. They say, this passage is a series of blanket guarantees these things won't happen. The difference is, of course, some people think God's right about that, and some people think the psalmist is wrong about that. But the reading of the text is the same in both senses. And of course, the awful flip side has to be weighed in as well. What happens when disciples of Jesus read the psalm in that way? This is a series of blanket guarantees that I won't come to any harm if I trust God. And then they do get sick. And then they conclude, maybe I don't trust God. Then, Maybe I don't love God enough. Maybe he is not my fortress, my refuge. Maybe he doesn't love me. And you can see how that happens too, right? If you trust and love God, you will never face harm. But I have faced harm. Maybe I don't trust him. Oh, no. So you have to think this through carefully. It's a, it's a beautifully rich, encouraging, strengthening psalm. But it has some readings of it that could be quite harmful in their consequences if we were not to get them just out there and talk about them and say, okay, so how do we read this text? What does and doesn't it mean? So I want to start by, oddly, addressing what the psalm doesn't mean because I, and why we know it doesn't mean what I've just said. I think this is important in a, this particular case because unlike most passages of Scripture, it's the sort of text that when you read it, you quickly associate with that kind of view. Or almost like you, you see the wrong interpretation before you see the right one. I think that's common, not necessarily for all of us, but many of us, we may have had that experience ourselves. So let me give you four reasons why this psalm cannot be an immunity possible for all people who trust in God. First reason for that is to say that that is not what the Psalms, taken collectively, 
I think it's true in this one as well, as we'll see, but true certainly of the book of Psalms as a whole. That's not what the Psalms teach about harm and suffering at all. And we've probably already seen that in this very series we're in, and we certainly will have by the end of this series, because the Psalms are absolutely chock full of lament psalms, which talk over and over again about the terrible things that happen to the people of God, and yet even though we cling to him in faith. And in fact, you don't even have to go very far to other parts of the Psalter to see it. Right, So this is Psalm 91. In the previous Psalm, Psalm 90, Moses says, and Moses is a pretty authoritative character in the Old Testament and in the Psalter, Moses says, our lives last no more than 70 or 80 years and are full of trouble and sorrow. So if you read Psalm 91 and you'd previously read Psalm 90, you would go, okay, I might need to think about how best to read this, but there's no way it means people who love the Lord never experience difficulty. That can't be what it means. In the psalm before that, Psalm 89, Ethan cries out, Remember how fleeting is my life for what futility you have created all of humanity. Who can live and not see death or who can escape the power of the grave? Psalm 89, 47 to 48. So Psalm 91 says all these wonderful promises. Psalm 90 says human beings' lives are, very, are pretty short, really. Um, no matter how strong you are, you never live more than 80 odd years and they're full of trouble and sorrow. The psalm before that has Ethan going, oh, my life is so fleeting. It's just so full of difficulty and, uh, and, and it's going to end in death. And then the psalm before that, Psalm 88, is the darkest in the whole Psalter. It's the darkest chapter in the whole Bible. Heman is overwhelmed with trouble his eyes are dim with grief, he's crying himself to sleep, and darkness is his closest friend. And even in this Psalm 91, this very buoyant and confident psalm, the writer is still praising God for being with him in trouble. Psalm 91, verse 15. So whatever else we say about the psalm, and we will come to that in a moment, there's no way that this psalm, taken on its own terms, or within the Psalter as a whole, or even just the run of three or four psalms it's in, there's no way it means if you trust in God enough, nothing bad will ever happen. That's the first reason. And I think it's a pretty compelling reason, but there are others. The second reason is that that is not also, that's not what Jesus teaches about harm and suffering, which for a Christian is pretty important. What did Jesus say about this? And if you've read through the Gospels recently or kind of ever, you will notice it ever, everywhere. You'll be reading the Gospels and Jesus is continually warning his disciples that not only will their faith not stop them getting into trouble, it will actually cause them to get into trouble. It's like faith, if anything, is like the opposite of an immunity passport. It means that all of the trials and tribulations that come to ordinary people will still come to you and there'll be some others as well, like persecution and hardship. So just thinking, Jesus doesn't teach this either. And Jesus himself, of course, is the ultimate example. He's the only person who trusts his father perfectly, and yet he suffers more pain and physical degradation than any of us can imagine. That's the second reason. So this isn't what the Psalms can mean. This isn't what Jesus says about suffering. Thirdly, it isn't what the rest of Scripture teaches about harm and suffering, because righteous people who make the Lord their refuge face a lot of trouble, and they do get sick, and they do die, and they do get struck down in battle. You could go through the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Job, David, Jeremiah. You've got suffering everywhere. Paul, the apostle, in the midst of the most triumphant statement of Christian security in Scripture, we're more than conquerors, mentions threats to him of trouble, hardship, nakedness, danger, sword, and being slaughtered like sheep. So that this, is not what, this is not what the psalm teaches within itself. It's not what Jesus teaches. It's not what the rest of Scripture teaches. And then the fourth reason, which is a cheeky one, but I think it holds, 
The fourth reason to say that this psalm cannot be an immunity passport in the way that it's sometimes understood is that the only person in Scripture who does read Psalm 91 that way is the devil. There is someone, of course, in the Bible who does read Psalm 91 as a guarantee that no matter what you do and how stupid it is, you will nevertheless never come to any physical harm, and that person is the devil. And that's what happens in the story. In Matthew 4 and in Luke 4, the devil says, come up here, stand on the top of the temple, jump off, because the Scripture says he will command his angels concerning you. You won't strike your foot against a stone. You won't even stub your toe if you jump from the highest point of the temple. Jesus, of course, is having none of it. He said the scripture also says you don't put the Lord to the test. And that, in many ways, is the best answer to the immunity passport reading of this psalm, which in some circles is common. And, it's, and even, for those, even if it's not something you believe, you've probably thought it as you've read a psalm like this, or even as we were reading it a few moments ago. So the psalmist, I don't, the psalmist is not promising us immunity from physical harm. He's actually promising something far better. Or more accurately, he's promising us seven things that are far better. I'm sorry about the fact that there's seven of them, but I just want to walk through them just to, for you to be encouraged, really, about the riches there are in a text like this to reassure and strengthen us in faith. Seven things that this psalm promises us that are far better than immunity from physical harm. First one is rest. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 1. Rest in Scripture comes when the work has been done. And when you take shelter in the Most High and in His finished work for you, you get to rest on the basis of His achievements and not yours. It's actually one of the elders at your church who I first heard read out the contrast between the last words of the Buddha before he died and the last words of Jesus. I'd never heard this before. I've since quoted it many times. It was Simon Brading, and he was uh, 10 or 15 years ago, and I remember him saying, the last words of the Buddha before he died, work hard and strive to gain your own salvation. The last words of Jesus, it is finished. So both of them before they died. And I, to be honest, when I first heard it, I thought, that's too good to be true. That can't be a real quote. That sounds like a, a Christian made up quote. So I went and looked it up and I was like, oh, there's occasional differences about how exactly to translate the, the key words in Sanskrit. But basically, yeah, strive without ceasing. Keep working for salvation or whatever, it, however else you translate the word. And on the other, on the other side, it is finished. And that contrast between the work and the rest the person who says, this, is of, this rests with me, it's my responsibility to attain to salvation. And the one who says, no, it's been finished by somebody other than me and I can rest in the shadow of the Almighty. That contrast is as wide as the world. <clears throat> so the first thing that this psalm promises those of us who make the most high our refuge is the rest of being able to hide in the shelter and the shadow of one who has worked for me rather than me having to rely on my own works to save me second thing it promises is refuge verse 2 i will say of the lord he is my refuge and my fortress my god in whom i trust in times of trouble the places we go to hide don't work anymore and that's one of the weird things about uh, the for me was one of the weird things about the pandemic where I, one of the things I actually found hardest was the physical places where I would go to escape some of the trials. In my case, you know, apparently young kids and just things noisy and stressy at home and so on. And but, oh, this, I don't even normally notice it because I say, it's all right, I can go and go and sit in my office. 
and be surrounded by books or I can go and see a friend or I can go and sit in a coffee shop. For me, that was a big part of it. And that first lockdown where you weren't allowed to leave the house really for any reason except for an hour a day. And we, we stuck to that and we just went, no, same routine every day. We'll go for a walk. And it was nice. But I thought I just didn't get to the places I'd seen as a refuge, a hiding place. I couldn't go. I wasn't allowed to go to my office, certainly couldn't go to a coffee shop for months afterwards. And I found it really hard because I was used to, these places did serve for me as a kind of a refuge, as a place to go and hide and find refreshment. And then when those refuges get taken away as they were for a period of, as you remember, several months and then they got reopened and they got taken away again. When that happened, I found that really spiritually difficult as well. I thought I have obviously more than I realized placed my hope as a source of refuge in physical spaces, as among other things. But when those things collapse and get taken away, the refuge remains. And the psalmist is saying, I will say to the Lord, he's my refuge. I actually can't find refuge ultimately in the things of this world or even in places that I could go to reflect or pause or detox from, I just unplug. I can't ultimately place my hope in those things. I've got to say of the Lord that he is my refuge and my fortress and the God in whom I trust. So that when those other sources of refuge collapse, the refuge with a capital R remains. So the psalmist is promising us rest, verse 1, refuge, verse 2. Thirdly, he's promising us fearlessness, verses 5 and 6. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys. When you make the Most High your dwelling place, you have nothing to fear. The very worst thing that can happen to you is death, and Jesus has conquered that already. And that was brought home to me by a much older saint who I know, who's actually died in the last year. But he said this, he said, well, honestly, what are we worried about? The worst thing that the devil can do to me is kill me and Jesus as well. And then he ushers me straight in the presence of Jesus. I just don't see the problem. Now, not all of us face death with that degree of kind of boldness, I guess. And it doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad person if you don't. But it struck a chord because I thought that is true. Like biblically speaking, for the Christian, that is true. And it's what the psalmist is saying here. You don't need to fear the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day. You don't need to be scared of them. Now, we might say, well, he, he wasn't scared of them because he thought they were never going to hit him, whereas I might don't need not to be scared of them because they don't have the power over me. But that is ultimately the Christian view, that one day something's going to strike me down. One day I'm going to die of something, but I don't need to be afraid of whatever that thing is because the best thing the devil can do to me is to send me straight into the presence of Jesus. And this older saint I heard say that was absolutely on the money. So the psalmist is saying you've got rest, you've got refuge, you've got fearlessness. Fourthly, you've got protection. Look at verses 11 and then verse 14 as well. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. Now we've already seen that that's not a guarantee that we won't suffer. But it clearly is a promise of divine protection and angelic guardianship that should bolster our confidence and fuel our prayers. There is a sense that, no, okay, this isn't a guarantee. I'm never going to get hurt. I'm never thinking bad is ever going to happen. But he's saying, actually, God has promised angelic protection over his people. He has promised intervention. He has promised rescue and protection and covering for those who love him. Now, I say, well, what use is that if I don't know what form it takes? If it, if it isn't a guarantee, what is it? And I'm not, to be honest, I'm not always sure exactly what form it will take in your life or even in mine. What I know is that that divine 
promise of protection holds for me, even if all it means is that God is going to carry me through the trouble and sustain me in faith in the midst of trial and carry me safely to the right hand of the Father on the other side of death. Even if that's all it means, and often it means more than that. It means he is actually going to protect you from those arms here and now. But even if it doesn't mean those things, even if I don't experience that deliverance right now, that that certainty of God carrying me safely to glory is a beautiful promise that again the psalmist is offering me to sustain me in knowledge that the trials will come, but that when they do, God will protect me through them. The fifth thing that the psalmist promises is victory. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. And that one we're going to come back to in a moment, the victory one. The sixth one is a a promise of answered prayer. Verse 15, he will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. When you call on God, he will answer. That's one of the promises in this psalm. So if you face trouble, then you will. You cry out to God and you know that God's going to answer you. And that you will, he will accompany you and he will be with you in trouble. That when you're in the, as we often say, when you're in the storm in the boat on the sea, knowing that Jesus is with you, take heart. I am. Don't be afraid. That, that accompaniment, that I will be with him in, or her in trouble, so crucial. This is better than a passport of immunity. This is a promise of intimacy. It's a promise that God will be with you and will answer you no matter what happens. One of my favorite lines in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a document I often quote, a sort of German question and answer thing to teach people the basics of Christianity. The very last line, they're talking about the Lord's Prayer, and the very last line of the Catechism, the question is, what does the word Amen mean at the end of the Lord's Prayer? Why do we say Amen? And the answer is, Amen means this will truly and surely be. It is even more certain that God hears my prayer than that I truly desire what I'm praying for. There's a promise in this psalm of answered prayer. I will be with him in trouble. And when he calls out to me, I will be with him and I will answer him. So there's a promise of answered prayer. And then finally, seventh, there's a promise of salvation. Verse 16, with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And that promise in a way was too great even for the psalmist to understand. Because long life is wonderful, but it still ends in death. Eventually, in Christ, God was going to bring about eternal life, indestructible life, everlasting salvation. He was going to go even beyond the long life that the psalmist anticipated and provide something even better that could never get taken away, even in death. So there's a lot of promises there. Seven huge arcs of biblical promises. Rest, refuge, fearlessness, protection, victory, answered prayer, and salvation. And the one that encouraged me most as I was preparing was the one that we skipped just now. The, f- the fifth one, I think it was, the promise of victory. Let's read it again, verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. You won't just survive, you will crush your enemies. That's what he's saying. Now, there's two animals in the scriptures that are used generally to, to picture the devil. A serpent and a roaring lion. If you read through the Bible, you think, who... If you're going to try and draw a picture of the devil, the first picture that probably comes to mind in our culture is the serpent or the snake, and the other is the roaring lion. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, the Bible says. So those two images of the devil, and understandably so. They're terrifying animals. And here, the psalmist promises that those are the two animals that you, if you trust in the Lord, will trample into the dust. And because Jesus refused to bow down to the devil, 
even when challenged with this very psalm, the lion of Judah has mauled the lion of hell. And this, this, the Bible in many ways is a clash between the lion of Judah and the lion of hell. Jesus, the lion, versus the devil, the would-be lion. It's also in another way, so clash between the house of the lion and the house of the snake. You might even say between Gryffindor and Slytherin. I mean, it's like, that's the narrative of the Bible. It's like, you've got the lion people and you've got the snake people and there's a battle between the two of them. And it's because in Jesus, the people of God did not yield to the devil's temptation because the true son of Adam trampled the serpent. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet as well. That's the promise. And so this beautiful verse, you'll tread on the lion and the cobra. You'll trample the great lion and the serpent. This is a promise that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ as he does battle with the devil and crushes him under his feet. But because Jesus does, it means you do too. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet just as it did under his. So people who think this psalm is an immunity passport, as we started with, they're not exaggerating its significance. In many ways, they're lowballing it. They're understating what it's promising. The victory of Jesus does not make us conquerors for this life. It makes us more than conquerors forever. It's actually making a bigger promise, a bigger claim than people who read it in the immunity passport way would think it did. And so I want to finish by reading the passage in the New Testament that best captures this fighting spirit of Psalm 91, expressed in the midst of terrible suffering and yet declaring the ultimate vindication of God's people and their trampling, victorious win over the, Satan, the, the snake and the lion. Here's how the Apostle Paul talked about it in his equivalent of Psalm 91 in Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Pestilence, the sword, the deadly plague, the cobra, the lion, the, the arrow that flies by night, the, the disease that strikes at the noonday. Who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God has given you his son, he's going to give you all things as well, isn't he? Because if you put the, which is more valuable, the son or all things? Clearly the son to God the father is more valuable. So if God's already given you the son, he's going to give you all things as well. In with the bargain, right? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I will be with him, says the psalmist, in the day of trouble. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, any of those things, the disease, the arrow, the pestilence, the 10,000 falling by your right hand side, any of those things? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered like sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your remarkable, heavyweight, reassuring promises. And I pray for my brothers and sisters today that you would empower us 
to live in the strength of those promises, make the Most High our refuge, enjoy the rest that comes with living in the shadow of the Almighty, and live to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.